0: How are we all doing today, Risen Hope? Got a woo from Bernie. Everything else was kind of like, it's Easter. Well, Easter Eve technically, but we're celebrating Easter today. All right, let me uh, let me begin by. Um, it's a little windy right now, and I have a paper manuscript, just so you know. So. What could possibly go wrong? Um, Pray that it stays on here. Let me pray real quick and ask God for help. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we're gathered here this Saturday and Sunday tomorrow with the rest of our family, um, seeking you, seeking to see your glory and understand your worth and your beauty both in the death of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago and in his resurrection from the grave. Father, as we come to your word, I pray that you'd remove error from my mouth, that you'd give me clarity and and help all of our hearts, mine included, hear what you have to say today about who you are and about what you accomplished in history 2,000 years ago. And about what you're going to accomplish when your son returns. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Genesis 1, if you're familiar with that book of the Bible, that chapter shows us the beginning of human history. When it states in verse 26 that God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them, man, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it says that God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so this is, what we're looking at here is the beginning of human history. This is when human history started. And I know that for Easter, this may not feel like an appropriate text, Um, but let me assure you it is extremely appropriate because here at the beginning of human history we see a glimpse of the end of human history. Here God makes man and woman in his image unlike anything else in all of creation. He crowns them alone above all other creatures he's made on this planet with honor and dignity by making them in his own image making them in the image of the living God. And then he leans down into creation. That's the picture that Moses is painting here in Genesis. And he looks at these image bearers and he blesses them. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He tells them, I want you to subdue this planet. I want you to to have dominion over all of it. And what God was essentially saying in that is that he was saying, listen, as image bearers of me, I want you to show me to this world. I want you to show my goodness, my righteousness, my glory in this world. I want you to fill this entire planet with my image. That's what this is. God's image, his glory filling all things. And... To subdue it, to have dominion over this, means that we, we take this gracious role that God has given us as image bearers to care for and to reign over all of creation, every living thing that's on this planet. And one might wonder, if you think carefully about the implications of this command, given what we know happens in Genesis 3. Satan, the enemy, the adversary, the, the devil, this fallen angel is introduced in Genesis 3, and he is revealed as a serpent. He is revealed as part of creation, a, a creature. Think about this. He could come to them as anything. He, he could come to them as anything, but he chooses a serpent. Genesis 3 refers to him as a beast of the field. In other words, he comes to them as part of the very creation they were told to subdue. They were told to have dominion over. Now, why is that? Why would he do that? Why is the serpent here revealed in Genesis 3 as part of creation? Well, the answer may become more clear with another question. This is a question that Uh, My little girl asked me a long time ago, and uh, kids ask this all the time, what would have happened if Adam and Eve had actually obeyed God? What would have happened if Adam and Eve had heard the command of God and said, we're going to do it, and actually did it, and we did it after them? What would have happened if that were the case? That instead of bowing down to the serpent, they obeyed God, and they actually subdued the serpent. What would the end of human history look like if that were the case? That all of us, every single one of us here, had obeyed the command of God in Genesis 1? What kind of world would we have right now? Well, I think the answer to that question is not the world we have right now. Right, Eleanor? She knows. That didn't happen. None of us have obeyed the command of Genesis 1. All of us have have sinned. We've refused to bear God's image in this world, which is to say that we've rejected the glory of God and rejected the very purpose for which we were made by refusing to act like and live like God in his righteousness. Instead of taking dominion over the serpent, we have become captive to the serpent, the human race. We, We believe the serpent's lie that it is better to seize our own glory than to give that glory to God, to reflect the glory he's given us as image bearers. And we've become slaves to that lie. We, we've forsaken the divine purpose for which we were created. And because of Adam's defiance, and really the defiance of all of human, uh, the human race, death has entered our world. Death has penetrated every inch of the created order. Every person, for example, who hears my voice right now, no matter your age, no matter how strong you're feeling today, no matter how healthy you are, no matter what kind of diet you're on right now, you're going to die one day. I'm going to die one day. It's going to happen. And that's going to happen because of this. This is the world we have right now, a world that's racked by death, racked by suffering. We've seen that especially last year after a pandemic and swept through and is still running its course. But this is not only that world, this is also the world that Easter and the celebration of the resurrection speaks into, and it speaks into loudly. God was not finished with humanity when we betrayed him in the garden. He wasn't done with us. And what Easter will tell us as we look at the text we're going to look at today is that God's purpose to fill the entire world with his glory wasn't thwarted on the day that Adam sinned and death entered this planet. It wasn't thwarted. It wasn't changed. It wasn't it wasn't it didn't have a car accident and just go off the rails. That tragic event by God's grace and sovereignty, becomes the very means by which God will accomplish his purpose in the world to fill the earth with his glory. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And uh, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you know that we've explored this chapter which is Paul's defense of the, the resurrection of God's people at the end of human history. It is, in its essence, the hope of Easter. That's why we have balloons over there. That's why we're, praise God, gathering outside as a church family. And we started at the end of this chapter, we kind of did this in an in a unconventional way. We started at the end because the end is technically the chronological beginning of all that Paul is unpacking in this chapter. And it engages the first week of this series, the resurrection of God's people. And then last week, we looked at the nature of resurrection. What does it mean to be raised from the dead? What does it mean to have glorified bodies? And why is that important for us to know? And today we're going to begin with verse 20. Um, and we're going to look at the purpose of the resurrection. What is the ultimate purpose? We're going to compass much of what has already been said, and then we're going we're to push through and move into the ultimate goal of the resurrection. What was God's purpose in the end? And we're going to come to, and you're going to see this language as we read the text, the end, the end of history, the the culmination of reality, the end of all things. This is the final purpose that the resurrection has always been pointing to. And uh, before we read it, Paul spent the first 19 verses of this chapter, and we may, I don't know yet, still praying about it, we may look at that next week and have a post-Easter, Easter Easter kind of service. We'll see. Um, But the first 19 verses engage the, the, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity for God's people to be raised from the dead. And then we get to verse 20. And so I'm going to read through this passage all the way to 28, and then we're going to walk through it. Paul says, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then, Paul says, comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, and then he quotes Psalm 8 here, which we'll look at in a little bit, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection it is plain that that he that god is accepted excluded from this who put all things in subjection under christ when all things are subjected to him then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that god paul says may be all in all All right. What did Paul just tell us? So in verse 20, he begins by saying, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And I love this line. In my study, I lingered over this line because this line is amazing to me. Paul is a man who hated Jesus. He hated him. And he thought that he was a fraud to such a degree that he was willing to go around capturing Jesus' followers, imprisoning them, and then executing them. That's the man who just said, verse 20. Same man. And yet he says, effectively here, it is an empirical, objective fact that Jesus of Nazareth has been raised from the dead. Period. Period. whether you like it or not. Whether you're confident about it or whether you're still on the fence, whether you're skeptical about it or whether you're fully convinced that that happened. Paul says it doesn't matter. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's true. And he continues here by saying that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that, first fruits? First fruits. Strange language, we don't use that often here. The first fruits are the first crop to come in from the harvest. So when a harvest comes in, this is the front end of that. It's the very beginning of the harvest. And Paul is saying that Christ, when it comes to the resurrection, is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's the language here, fallen asleep. Again, is strange to us. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. That's what he means here. This language of falling asleep is is used throughout the Scriptures. And of course, it doesn't mean literal sleep. It simply means that when we die and are buried in the ground, the imagery is of one falling asleep. And it also expresses the fact that the ancients who used that language did did not feel like or believe that death was final. They didn't believe that death was permanent. And that's the kind of language you use when you don't believe death is permanent. And Paul here is saying that, that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of those who have died, who have fallen asleep. He's the front end of the resurrection of the dead. And then next in verse 21, Paul is going to give us the reason why Christ had to rise. Verse 21, he says, For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So he's telling us why the resurrection had to happen. He says the reason that Christ had to enter our world and die and then rise from the dead is because it was through a man that death came into this world. That's how death entered into our world, through the very same thing that we saw in Genesis. Death came in through Adam, and so the resurrection of the dead must also come through a man. Otherwise, it would not count for mankind. Jesus had to die, and then he had to be raised from the dead. Paul says here that in Adam, all die. And what he means here is that everyone who comes from Adam's lineage—do you know anybody who comes from Adam's lineage? It's called all of humanity. Everyone who comes from Adam's lineage, who comes from Adam's family line, will one day die, he says. But he also says here that those who are in Christ, those who have been moved from Adam to Christ, shall be made alive. What he means there, when he says in Christ, he means everyone who's trusted Christ, who's received Christ, who's been joined to Christ by God, will be made alive. And so this is not a small matter. This is of eternal importance. All of us have inherited, through Adam, death. We as humans come from the first man. And therefore, the only way for death to be annulled, the only way for death to be abolished is for us to be removed from Adam And placed in Christ. And this right here is really the main division in humanity. I know we've got a lot of artificial divisions. Some are real. Some are superimposed on the human race. But every division that we conceive of in this world compared to this division right here is ultimately irrelevant. Let me say that again. Any division that you or I or anyone else for that matter creates in this world is ultimately and eternally irrelevant. This is the only one that matters. So think about this. Your your political affiliation, your socioeconomic status, your denomination, your theological way of thinking in terms of like tradition, your nationality, where you're from, where you're going, None of those determine your eternity, but this one does. We are either in Christ or we are in Adam. We either belong to Adam or we belong to Jesus. There's no middle ground there, and therefore this, is, this can't get more important. Eternity is at stake for this question, for those who truly belong to Jesus, For those who are in Christ and have trusted in him and received him. Verse 23 in this text tells us, we will be raised on the final day. It's going to happen. It says, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Those who are in Christ. That's how it's going to play out. So, 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered into this world. Christ died in this world. And then, three days later, he rose from the dead, made alive by the Holy Spirit, the first fruits. And then, when he comes back, everyone who belongs to him will rise. Upon his return, we will be raised, if your faith is in him, just like Christ was. Romans eight nineteen refers to this as the revealing of the children of God. I mean, think about that. All of creation has been waiting for that day, groaning for that day under the strain of the death that entered into this world through man. They're waiting for the day when God's children, who belongs to God through Christ, will be revealed. 1 John 3, 2 describes that moment like this. Listen to this. Beloved, John says, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when Christ appears, we shall be like him, because We shall see him as he is. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the resurrection of the dead. That's what's going to happen to you if you believe in Christ, if your faith is in him. And this is what our hope is. I mean, as Christians and as as members of Risen Hope. Risen Hope's not just a cute name. That's what this is. It is a risen hope. It is the deepest root of the Christian life. It is the fuel in the furnace of your heart as a Christian that one day I will be with him forever. I will be raised to life to be with him for eternity. The day when our faith becomes sight and he returns and all that we have hoped in, all that we have believed, all that we've held to in this world becomes real for everyone. Not just something we have our faith in. But Paul says here that that day isn't the end, quote unquote. There's more to this because Paul continues in verse 24, and where he goes next is, in fact, the end. I mean, he says this. And by taking us to the end here, he's going to show us face to face the purpose of the resurrection. What was God's ultimate goal? in raising his son from the dead and in promising to raise us to life at the end of the age. Verse 24, Paul says, when we're raised, then comes the end. When he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed, he says, is death. So this is, this is the end. Now, when I say the word end, I don't mean everything's going to stop. In fact, everything's going to begin at that point in a very real way. But this is the final purpose of all things. This is the, the tip of the spear of reality. And Paul is saying that, that Christ, God the Son, will deliver the kingdom to his Father. But he's going to do that only after he has destroyed every rule and Authority and power. What he has in mind here by using those words rule, authority, and power is not mainly physical rule, physical authority. He has in mind here spiritual beings, spiritual realities. These are the enemies he's talking about. We know that because in verse 26 he he refers to one of them as death. These are spiritual forces. So the words rule and authority and power, when you look over the New Testament, they are in many parts used to depict spiritual beings in the present age. And Paul is saying here that Christ must reign until he has put all of these beings under his feet. All these enemies must be under his feet. Now, to be honest, uh, you and I will not in this life fully understand all that that means. And I say that not because I'm trying to be arrogant. I say that because... When I get to a text like this, I feel like I'm standing out over a massive chasm. All of what it means for Christ to subdue and bring his enemies to a final, decisive end feels like it's something far beyond what we know in this world. But in in a very real way, this is something that you and I experience every day as Christians. The rule and the authority and the power of uh, verse 24, which includes death itself, are the same kinds of things that Paul brings up in Ephesians 6. You know this text where Paul tells us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. If the kids were here, they would have known that. A little bit disappointed. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's the serpent from Genesis 1 he's talking about. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Paul says, but against rulers, against authorities, and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what Paul's referring to in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what he's talking about. These are the enemies of Christ that he has in view. And so this isn't some abstract concept that's poetic and that we're just you know playing games with. This right here is something we experience every day of our lives when we act selfishly, when we sin, when we cheat, when we lie, when we reject the glory of God for the lie of the serpent. These are the enemies that Christ must subdue, according to Paul, the very ones which subdued humanity at the beginning of history in Genesis 3. And so in a very real way, the reign of Christ that Paul is talking about in First Corinthians 15 touches our lives every single day. Paul tells us here that Christ will reign, but one day those enemies will be gone. They will be defeated and destroyed, the very last enemy being death itself. And when, when Christ finally destroys death, when death is vanquished and only a memory, if that... Then Paul says, comes the end. When Christ, the Son of God, delivers, he says, the kingdom to God the Father. And he, he frames this by saying, this is the end. This is the end of everything. This is the end. And it's a fascinating statement. And he's going to unpack that in the next few verses. Verse 27 He begins by engaging Psalm 8. He says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. He's talking about God putting things in subjection under Jesus. But when it says all things are in subjection, it is plain that God is accepted. He's excluded. He's not included in that. God who put all things in subjection under Christ. And he says, when all things are subjected to Christ, when he's reigned, putting all the enemies under his feet, then the Son will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that, he says, God may be all in all. So those words are the end. That's the purpose, that God may be all in all. That's the purpose of all things kids ask the question, why? You got young kids, usually three-year-olds, they love the question, why? This is the answer at the end of the day. This is the ultimate answer for every why. All of human history is heading towards those words that God may be all in all, and it's been heading that way since he created space and time, since humanity first came onto the scene. Now, as we look at this, let's remember, in verse 26, he's told us that Christ must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. And then when that happens, it, or he goes in here, I'm going to lose my manuscript, it's going to happen. Verse 27, he quotes Psalm 8. And he says that that this psalm, which was written by David a thousand years before Christ was born, when David wrote this song, God putting all things in subjection under man's feet, he was talking about this event ultimately, about Christ. David may not have fully understood all that he was writing down when he wrote this song, but he was talking about this scene in verse 27 where Christ is reigning over all things. We're going to look at Psalm 8 in a second here, but I just want to have clarity about what Paul is saying here about placing things under Christ. He says God himself... The one who placed all things under Christ isn't included in the all things. I mean, he he labors at it in the, the text to such a degree where it's kind of confusing. His point here is that God is never in subjection to his son. God the Father is never in subjection to his son. And the reason why he wants us to know this is because to understand that is to understand God's ultimate purpose in doing it this way and having him, his son bring him back all things. And so to help illustrate this point, uh, I'm just going to ask you to visualize this. Maybe it would help to close your eyes. You don't need to. If You think that's weird. It's a little weird, but it might help you. Um, visualize with me this scene. God the Father sends his son into this world as the man Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And when he does this, he gives his son everything. All things. He puts everything under his authority. So visualize this. Christ comes to his father, opens up his hands, and as God pours into Christ's hands, the entire cosmos, all of created reality. And he says, this is yours, son. This belongs to you. I'm entrusting this to you, all of it. And then that son comes into the world, Jesus, fully God, fully man, and he dies for his people. He dies for everyone who would believe in him, everyone who would trust him and receive him. And then three days later, he rises from the dead. And from that moment on, this Christ, this son, This Jesus reigns over all things until every single enemy is destroyed and brought to a decisive end. And then Paul says, comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom to his father. So again, visualize this with me. Everything has been subjected to Christ, subdued by Christ, dominated by Christ. He has no enemies. We have no enemies. And now he brings all of this Everything back to his father. And he kneels before his father in subjection to him and says, This is yours. This belongs to you. I've completed the work you gave me. This belongs to you. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 15 that all of history is moving towards this point. That's the culmination of reality. And then he tells us why in verse 28. Why is the son subjected to the father? Why does he bring all things to God? Verse 28 says, when all things are subjected to the son, then the son himself will also be subjected to the father so that God may be all in all. Sometimes when I read a a passage in the Bible, I just look at the, it's ink on a page. That's what it is. But we're looking at words and underneath the words are meaning. And underneath these words, like when you look at them, whether you're looking on your screen or on your Bible, recognize that that's the focal point of everything, that God would be all in all. Those few words are the ultimate purpose for everything that has ever existed. And to understand this, we have to go into Psalm 8 and look at what David wrote that Paul pulled from. In a lot of ways, we have to go all the way back into Genesis 1, which you'll see in a second, and see the reason for the resurrection, the reason for God sending his son into the world. So Psalm 8 was written by David, like I said earlier. The focus of Psalm 8 is the majesty of God. And this is really easy to see it. You don't need to read the entire Psalm to to notice it. The first verse of Psalm 8 and the last verse of Psalm 8 are the same verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's David's focus. This song is about God's majesty, his glory, his worth being displayed in this world. And yet right in the middle of it is this section that Paul quoted in 1 Corinthians 15. David says, despite God's infinite majesty, despite his infinite glory, he looked upon man and he conferred on him incredible honor. Verse three says this, David, I mean, you can, this is one of those songs where you can feel what he felt when you read it. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. And we happen to be outside, even though it is cloudy. The moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have, here it is, Put all things under his feet. So here we are, back in Genesis 1. That's what he's referring to here. We're back with Adam and Eve in the garden when God gave humanity dominion over the work of his hands, over all the works of his hands. He crowned them with glory by giving them his image. And then he blessed them and gave them the command. He said, be fruitful, multiply, fill this earth with my image, subdue it, and have dominion over all of it. That's what Psalm 8 is talking about. And yet, like I said, the main focus of Psalm 8 isn't man. The main focus of Psalm 8 is the majesty of God. It's God's glory filling the earth. Now, why? Here's the reason why. God's glory filling the earth and the honor that God has conferred on man as being image bearers are not two separate realities. In the mind and heart of God, they are the same thing. They are intrinsically connected and woven together in God's plan for humanity and his plan for human history. As God's image fills this world, his image bearers fill this planet, subduing all things, having dominion over all things, God's glory covers earth and stretches out into the furthest reaches of all creation. That's what Psalm 8 is about. That's what Psalm 8 is engaging. But as you and I know, God gives Adam and Eve this blessing and then they sin. They turn their backs on him. They do what we do with him every day. They dishonor him and reject the purpose of bearing the image of God And for them, when that happened, death broke into this world like a tsunami. And so God, in His grace and His love for us, sends His Son, the perfect, eternally begotten image of the Father, effectively saying, in His sending of His Son, there is only one way to redeem what is lost. There's only one way for my glory to fill this earth and that is for you, my son, to enter human history and for you to die in their place. That's the only way that this is going to happen. And on the third day, for you to rise from the dead, breaking their captivity to sin and death. And so As we saw, the Father gives the Son all things, sends Him into the world to die so that when He is raised and when He reigns and everything is subjected to His authority, including the serpent from Genesis 3, including death itself, when that happens, the end comes. And God's ultimate purpose is achieved. The very thing that he had commanded Adam and Eve, the very thing that he commands us to do will finally be accomplished in the reality of Psalm 8, will be completed in Christ Jesus. That's how he's going to do it, through his son. And in that moment, when Christ gives him all of reality back, redeemed and rescued by him, God will be all in all. God's glory will so penetrate And radiate from his people, from our lives, that he will be all for us. He will be all for us. And wherever we go, that glory will go with us, so that God's glory will fill all things. This is the reason for Easter, this is the reason for the resurrection that the glory of God would fill every single inch of the created order. And this isn't new. This isn't a surprise. If you read your Bibles, you see this all over the place. Numbers 14, 21. God says, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That's a promise. And he's going to keep it. Habakkuk 2, 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There's a lot of waters covering the sea. That's how much glory is going to be in this planet. Ephesians 4.10, I love this one because it focuses on Christ. He who descended, Jesus, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Why, Paul? That he might fill all things. Everything in human history has been pointing to this event. God's ultimate purpose underneath all that has happened is this, that God would be all in all, that his redeemed people would extend his glory into all creation. And for those who are in Christ, for those who have faith in Jesus, listen to me, please hear this. You are part of this. You are part of this. When Paul says that God would be all in all, he's talking about us. We are in that all in all. We are part of that. Easter isn't just about death going away, as awesome as that is. Easter isn't just about us getting resurrected bodies that don't ache in the morning when we wake up. Easter is about becoming what we were always meant to be. It's about God's glory penetrating every part of the created order through us. And this remarkable love that he must have for us, that he would bring us into this unparalleled joy of showing him for all eternity and that he would do it, get this, at the cost of his only begotten son. That's the price he paid to make this happen. There is nothing like this in the the world. This is why the gospel is so sweet, so beautiful, so awesome. That God's own glory, his own worth would shine through us as beloved children, children redeemed by the cross of Jesus Christ to show him, to shine him, to display him wherever we go. That's what the cross purchased when the cross happened and when Christ rose from, the, day, rose from the, the grave three days later, death lost decisively. Mortality received a mortal wound from which it will never recover. It's going to be gone one day. And In that event of dying and rising from the dead, God begins to create a people, us, through whom he will fill all things. This is the purpose of the resurrection. This is the purpose of Easter. This is the focal point of reality, that God would be all in all and that we would be the very means by which he accomplishes that. In the next few moments, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper, communion. There's single serve cups over there. So when we start singing, you're welcome to to grab one. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, you are invited to participate. Recognize that as you do this, you are participating in an act which celebrates Christ's death on our behalf until he comes again for us until the stuff that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15 becomes real. And so as we prepare our hearts for this, I wanna just encourage you one last time by reading you a a passage from 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that shows us a glimpse of this final day. Listen to this, be there in your mind. This is the hope that we're, we're longing for. This is the future that we are confident in because of what Christ accomplished. Paul says on that last day, The Lord himself, Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of a trumpet, the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, that's us, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we will always be with the Lord. Always. That word's really in there. And the we he is talking about there is us. That's us. We will be with him. This is real. I just want you to feel that. This is real. Uh, It may not feel real to you today. I don't know where you are in your walk right now with Christ, It may not feel real to you today, but can I just be honest with you? When this happens, it will be more real to you than anything you've ever experienced in your life, period. This will feel fake compared to that. That's how real that will be. We will see him in his glory and the seeing of him will be so powerful that we will become like him. In that moment. And although Paul uses the language, the end, to depict this moment in history when Christ delivers the kingdom to his Father, in many ways, for those who belong to Christ, it's actually just the beginning. The first day of eternity will be the first day that we step out into the created order, fulfilling the very thing that Paul says, that God would be all in all, that his glory would fill the earth like the waters cover the sea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at realities like this, I feel at a loss. They are far too big, far too great for me to adequately give them the honor and respect that they deserve. And so I just pray for your gracious, sovereign mercy as we worship you and participate in communion, that you would help us feel these realities. That they wouldn't just be things that we can intellectually grasp in our minds, but that they would be things that shape the very center of our beings, that our souls would come to know these things as real, true realities, Father. The hope of the resurrection at the end of the age, the fuel of the Christian's heart, that we will one day be with our Savior always, as 1 Thessalonians says. Help us know that to be true, not just as a thing we believe, but as the very focal point of our lives and the point to which we will without failing, get to by your grace. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.